I asked my wife, actually, today's definition, sermon definition, we're defining love today, but I put it off till this week because it's a little different than what people would probably think about when they think about Valentine's Day type love. Um, Christine's downstairs, right? Yeah, she is. Um, I asked her this past week, I said, um, what do you find attractive? And uh, maybe I asked for slightly selfish reasons, but um, we, know, we know quite a bit about each other at this point. We've been married for creeping up on 30 years, and, uh, but occasionally we discover new things about each other. And uh, we've been married long enough that we can talk about most things in a meaningful way without getting overly upset with each other. Sometimes discussions get a bit heated, and we fight just like any couple does. But for the most part, we can communicate fairly well because we've had a lot of practice. But I want to ask Christine, or Christine that question. Um, what do you find attractive? You know what she told me? It, she said, when you cook dinner and do the dishes, and maybe it's my male brain, but I have a hard time connecting those two in my head, cooking food and doing dishes, being attractive. But um, I also know that she tells me the truth, so I don't have any reason not to believe what she says. My first thought is, are you trying to manipulate me into doing that? But no, she wouldn't do that. But there are, you know, areas um, where we don't necessarily share definitions. Um, that would be one of us. I obviously wouldn't define what is attractive the same way she does. Probably it's that case in a lot of marriages. But I just say that to bring out the idea, the concept that there is obviously some room in some areas of life for opinions and personal ways of defining things. You know, that's, that's just a reality. Not every definition needs to be shared. We're all different. Um, if we were all the same, you know, we'd be, some of us would be redundant. But for instance, we might not define what is attractive the same way, but we do need to share a definition of some things that are less than an opinion and more foundational. Like for Christine and I, the way we define marriage itself needs to be a shared definition so we understand what we're in together. And there's a lot of flexibility about what we think within the bounds of how we define marriage, but there needs to be defined boundaries. And the word paradise, for instance, can be traced back to a word that the Greeks borrowed from the Persians that means walled garden. So paradise means walled garden. And in the Old Testament, you see that there are many walled cities. Each tribe of Israel is given clear boundaries about where they were to live. Uh, the laws of, of Moses, the Levitical law, give clear boundaries about how to live day-to-day -day life. Um, clear boundaries about how worship took place in the temple in the Old Testament. Even the New Jerusalem, we read about in the book of Revelation, the city of heaven is surrounded by walls, very clear boundaries, and they're described as great and high. And well-defined boundaries are important, and they provide security, they provide comfort, and they provide peace. They really do. Sometimes we think we don't want boundaries, we don't want walls, but that's not really true. That's not really true. We do need those things. Sometimes we may be in a position where we mostly get to decide what we want to do and how we want to do we need to
but we do need them for sure. And to define marriage in a word for Christine and I, we would probably both use something like permanent. It's permanent. We have agreed no matter what happens, not to break our covenant with each other. That's just what we've agreed to. And that's a boundary we have agreed not to cross. That's a, a clear wall that we won't go over. And there have been many times in my life that I have been able to lean into that boundary and find peace and comfort and security in that. And the definition of love in our marriage would also be a foundational part of our life together. But to break it down into a very brief definition would be difficult because it's very complicated, especially when we talk about love, like the love we share in our marriage. There's different kinds of it. There are many different kinds of love. And when we talk about love, we understand it by the context in which we use the word. If I say, I love this church, I love God, uh, I love my kids, I love my wife, I love the dog, I love food. Those are all different kinds of love, but you understand them by the context I put them in. Valentine's Day, like I said, was last week. And I think the definition of love, that kind of romantic love that goes along with Valentine's Day, is often the way our culture defines love. It's kind of similar to that, along that line. Very prominent definition for love. But there's a lot more to it than that. And when I say love, initially, that's probably where a lot of people's mind go, is to that kind of love. And that's very much one definition of love. That's true. It's not untrue. And that is one of the kinds of love shared in marriage. And when we talk about church things, our relationship with God, that definition can sometimes be conflated with Valentine's Day type love and, and almost off-putting for some, especially for men. Um, there was kind of a trend for a little while in uh, Christian music where there was a lot of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of songs. And uh, that was just, it just felt awkward for some of us. That's off-putting. And even biblical terms sometimes, like Bride of Christ or Marriage Supper of the Lamb, um, can feel a bit awkward, at least from a male perspective. And some guys probably read those things and think, really, a bride? Do I want to be a bride? But there are some things that are difficult to find, and that's, that's one of them. And you can spend a lot of time trying to do that. And in the book of Revelation, John tries to describe many things that are beyond his understanding and the vocabulary that he has available. And there are things of God that are beyond our ability, you know, things that we can't comprehend, things that we don't understand, at least not yet. And Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.9. He says, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And there's a lot of everyday things that we do and say all the time that we understand kind of because we understand them, but they're difficult to define. For instance, something we all have every day, we're all doing all, uh, multiple times a day. We all have thoughts. We have thoughts, but you know, what is a thought? If you have to define that, well, you understand what I'm talking about, but put that into words and make it clear is kind of difficult. Of course, there's a dictionary definition for it that says something like an idea or an opinion produced by thinking. And how do you think? What does that mean? You suddenly have an idea pop into your head. Where does that come from? Some people well, said that might say that comes from God. Well, what about the ungodly thoughts that we have? What about like when I wake up in the middle of the night, and I do this 
almost every night, wake up in the middle of the night and I'll have a thought in my head, a problem I've been trying to work out and all of a sudden there's a solution there or an idea to fix or do something. And sometimes we're better able to define things with stories or metaphors or like parables like Jesus used, especially concepts. Jesus used a lot of metaphors and parables in his teaching. And I suppose one way of understanding the way Jesus relates to us as his followers in the relationship is using marriage as a metaphor of that relationship. A committed marriage relationship is, is probably the closest understanding we have of the depth of the relationship we share with Jesus. Love can be difficult to define. If you have to put it into words, what does that mean? We understand it by the context in which we use the word, but putting it into words can be kind of difficult. I might say I love steak. I also say I love my wife, but those are two different kinds of love. And there are different kinds of love, but defining the difference by putting them into words would be challenging for me to do. It's not an easy thing, but at the same time, you know what I mean when I say it. I don't have to really explain the difference between love for steak and love for my wife. And in the language of the New Testament, the language from which it was translated, there are several different words that are translated as our single English word, love. Um, and sometimes we can kind of conflate different definitions without really understanding what's being said. So that's what we're attempting to do today is define love. Um, what is love? And don't say a terrible 90s dance club hit um, if you know that one. But what is love? from a biblical perspective, and how does it apply to us? And we touched on this passage last week. We're going to read it again today. But we're looking at uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, same passage we looked at last week. And remember, in this passage, there are different groups of people who had come together to attempt to trap Jesus in his words. There were the Pharisees. There was the Sadducees, a couple of different religious sects among the Jews. And there were the Herodians who were supporters of the Roman government. And they had come together and they figured, we'll ask Jesus some questions. And they believed that he wouldn't be able to answer these questions without triggering a lot of people. And someone who was very knowledgeable in the law asked Jesus, which of the commandments is the greatest? Which one of these commandments is the most important? Of course, any attempt to rank order the commands of God is bound to offend someone. If you do that now with other people, you're probably going to offend somebody. And when I say offended in the time that this was happening, I mean, they would try to cancel Jesus in an extreme way. They would try to have him killed or get him killed. And this is the passage, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. I'll read it to you. It says, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. And I pray that as we look into it, you would make it clear to us. Help us understand it. Help us to know it better. And through that, to know you better. And also to be better followers of you. And we're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In 
at the end of that there, Jesus says, all of the law and prophets, all of, all of Scripture hangs on these two commandments. And I said that Jesus summarized all the Old Testament law and prophets in those commandments, which is true, but at the same time, it wasn't just a summation that Jesus made there. Those are not new commandments. Jesus didn't make those up on the spot. You can actually find both of those commandments in the Old Testament, in both Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. So those are both Old Testament commandments. There's another place you can find them too, but I can't remember where it is off the top of my head. So in fact, Jesus actually did rank order the commands of God given in the Old Testament. He says, these are the greatest. These are the greatest. And he did so in such a way that it was indisputable what he said. The expert on the law says to him, the guy who asked him the question in the first place said, you're right. Love God and your neighbor is more than all burnt offerings and all sacrifices. So love God, love your neighbor are the preeminent commands from God. And one of our core convictions is that, and it says this, it says, love is the great commandment of our Lord Jesus upon which all others are dependent. We believe that love for one another, as Jesus loves us, proves we are his followers and demonstrates our love for God. And when Jesus said those commandments are greatest, when he did that, it doesn't make the others less important. That's not the idea, but it is a foundation on which the rest are built. And obedience to that commandment puts us in the place where we are working with the right motivation and understanding to obey the rest of the commandments and live those out. You know, I love my steak, I love my wife, two different kinds of love, loving God, loving your neighbor. They're actually two different kinds of love, two different ways of loving. And yes, we are commanded to love both, but it's not exactly the same thing. And for the sake of flow, we're going to talk about loving our neighbor first and keep that relatively short because I want to spend a fair amount of time of our time together on loving God. But what does it mean to love your neighbor? And something that John does a lot, especially in the books of First, Second, and Third John, is he'll make a statement and then he'll turn it around and state it the opposite way. Like he'll say it positive and then he'll turn around and state it the negative to kind of help define the statement and make it easier to understand. So let's do that. God says, love your neighbor. That's a positive statement that says, do this. And when we look at the definition of what is meant by love your neighbor, and you turn it around and state it in a don't do this kind of way, this is what it means. Jesus says, love her, and to restate that in the other way around would sound something like this. Don't neglect, disregard, or condemn your neighbor. Don't neglect, disregard, or condemn your neighbor. So that helps us better understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, love your neighbor. It's a helpful way we can define that. Now that's the short version because I want to get on to what it means to love God. Now there's a lot of belief in God. A lot of people are spiritual, things like that. Matter of fact, the majority of people are spiritual in some way, would say, I believe in God. But believing God or in God is a lot different than love for God. Very different things. Loving God is something that we are commanded to do as Christians, so it's good that we know what Jesus means when he says that. Because love for God is a defining trait. It's a trait that defines us. And one thing that it means to love God 
is that your life is going to show proof that you do. Your life is going to reflect that. And the word love in our context means when Jesus says love God, it means to esteem, indicating a direction of the will in finding one's joy in something or someone. It also refers to superiors, including the idea of duty, respect, and faithful service. Duty, respect, and faithful service. And we all have something that we esteem the most. Every one of us does. We have something that we esteem the most. We might not esteem anything that much, but there's something that we do esteem the most. Something which we, in which we seek joy the most. Something that we placed highest the most. And if that's not God, it is an idol. And we are living in disobedience to the command to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. And we all struggle with that at times. We all do that. Maybe this will help us struggle a little bit less. But sometimes believers think, and I've actually worked through this with people, talked to people about it. I've seen this several times. And the more we kind of fall into this trap, the harder it, harder it seems for people who are, who are caught in it. But sometimes believers think, well, I don't feel it, so I'm not doing it or I'm not doing something right. I don't feel like I love God, so I must not be loving God. In feeling love, like Valentine's Day type love, is not the indication of obedience to the command to love God. Two different kinds of love. And I think the reason we sometimes struggle with that is because we confuse or we conflate Valentine's Day type love with the command to love God. And they're not the same. They're not the same thing. That doesn't mean that we don't feel affection towards God. It doesn't mean that at all. Sometimes we do. Sometimes it may be more than others. But like I say, Christine and I have been married for a while. And I can assure you that there are days that we don't feel Valentine's Day type love for each other. I guarantee it. There are days that she has actually said, I love you. I just don't like you right now. Big difference. So there are days that we don't necessarily feel that, but that doesn't mean we don't love each other. And that's kind of like the command to love God. We make a decision to set our will on him and determine that he is highest, he is best, even when we don't feel like it. Because we don't always feel like it. And if you've been married for a while, you know that sometimes you stay married by of will. You determine, okay, there's a border I'm not going to cross. I'm going to stay in this relationship. Emotional affection isn't what makes marriage last. Matter of fact, relying on emotional affection to make it last is probably going to hurt more than it's going to help. And when it comes to loving God, Jesus is, is not my boyfriend. He's my king. There's a big difference. There's a big difference in that kind of love. Who I serve, who I pledge my, pledge my loyalty to. And when I'm living in obedience to the command to love God, it means I'm directing my will to do so in a respectful and dutiful and faithful way. Even when I don't want to. Even when I don't feel like it. And if that command is not the preeminent one, if that command is not the greatest one, it's going to be difficult for me to follow the other commands. It's going to make it very challenging if I'm relying on how I feel because I'm, I'm kind of a neurotic person. I experience a lot of negative emotion. And if I'm relying on how I feel to decide 
It's, it's going to be very difficult for me to do that. If I'm waiting for an emotional feeling to love God, that will very likely translate to I need to feel that first before I can live obediently in other ways. And that's why this is such a preeminent command. That's why Jesus says this is greatest. If I place too much emphasis on the emotional feeling, that can actually take God's place. That can actually become an idol I worship. Do I really need to feel emotion before proof that I am a disciple? How often do we come to church thinking, God, I want you to make me feel good today? Instead of loyalty and respect and worship and faithfulness. Jesus says, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Here's something that I read in one of my uh, word study books that I found very interesting in biblical times, cultures, Hebrew culture. Ancient Hebrews regarded our heart, their heart, as the organ of intellect and the mind of desires and affection, which is really interesting, isn't it? So if, if a Jewish person from Bible times said, follow your heart, they meant something entirely different than we do. And it's interesting when you start to think about that as you read the Bible. When you talk about your heart, um, the Bible talks about our heart. They regarded the heart as the organ of our intellect and our mind as the organ of desires and affections. But the point of what Jesus is saying when he says, love God with all your, you know, everything you are, is that involves our entire being, all of that. It's directing our will to live our lives for God in a way that will be evidenced in our lives. And there's another passage I want to go to in defining love and what that means as a disciple of Jesus. And that's John chapter 21. And this is uh, after, after the resurrection. I'll just go ahead and read it. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter was an emotional guy. He, was, he had a personality where he kind, of, he kind of acted out before he thought things through. Like when they were, you know, he walks in the water, which, you know, there's some good things to be said about that. He jumps right out of the boat, goes to Jesus. Everybody else stays in the boat. And that's just kind of his personality. Emotional, reactionary, jump out, do it, don't really think about it. And Peter loved Jesus emotionally. He really did. I really believe that. He had affection for And I don't mean to portray that as negative because it's not. That's a good thing. But as things unfolded, when Jesus was arrested and leading up to his crucifixion, even though Peter loved Jesus emotionally and had emotional affection for him, he denied who he knew. He even knew who Jesus was three different times. And later, after this, you know, Peter goes on to be a great help for early Christians. He kind of grows up. He writes the book of, of First and Second Peter. He matures. He's a great disciple. And 
He writes those books to Christians who are living under extreme persecution of the Roman Emperor Nero, which that'd be fun to talk about, but I don't want to keep here all day. You can go Google Nero. That'd be something you can research on your own. And how it was for Christians living under him is extremely horrific. I mean, it's beyond imagination. Just brace yourself. If you don't want to know that, don't look it up. But if you're interested, do it. Um, but this, all this stuff like the relationship with Jesus happens before Peter, you know, he goes on to do these great things as a Christian. And Jesus asks Peter three separate times, he says, do you love me? And, you know, Peter answers Jesus three times. And there's definitely, I'm sure the correlation there between him denying Jesus three times, Jesus asking him three times, if you love me. And each time Peter answers with, Lord, you know, I love you. And Peter had previously had a pretty high opinion of himself and also a high opinion of his loyalty to Jesus that he had based in his affection for Jesus. And you can see that in the way he says and does things. And it was based more in emotion than in will, than in decision. He was very affectionate towards Jesus. And it's easy to be driven by emotion. It's very motivating to be driven by emotion. Um, I really like positive emotion like anybody else does. But we tend to sensationalize things when we are driven by emotion. And in this conversation, Jesus clarifies for Peter what it means for Peter to love Jesus. And he asks Peter, Simon, something more than these. There's been a lot of discussion about what Jesus is talking about when he says these. And there are a couple, you know, I suppose, main ways that people look at that. And one way is that Jesus is talking about the other disciples when he says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other disciples do? And in Matthew 26, 33, Peter said, though all men will fall away on account of you, yet I will never fall away. You know, when he says all men, he may have been talking about the other disciples, but I would never do that. And Peter had that attitude, that great disciple, maybe even the best disciple. And Jesus is now saying to Peter, are you sure about that? Remember, you denied me. You even knew me three times. Your actions aren't matching up with your words, Peter. They're not the same thing. And another way of looking at this, and the one that I lean more to personally, is that Jesus is talking about fish when he says these. And Peter had gone back to being a fisherman, and now Jesus is asking him, are you going to follow me, or are you going to go back to where are you going to set your will, Peter? What's most important to you? And Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? And for you and me, we can take that statement and put whatever you want, whatever's really important to you in your life in place of these. Do you love me more than whatever? What is it that you make highest and best? What is it that you must have the most? What is it that you must have to be okay? If it's not God, it's an idol. It's an idol. And Jesus asked, do you love me more than that? And it's really a question of where you set your will, the decision you make. And I can feel some very powerful emotions for something. I can love something a lot. I can love something or someone very much. And there's a lot of things that I do love dearly. And it's okay to love lots of people and things. I'm not saying that at all. And I can 
also say, along with all that stuff, other, other stuff, that I love Jesus. But where do I really set me? What do I have to have to be at peace? And you can feel emotion and affection for something else, but not set your will on God. You can feel affection and emotion for something else and not really necessarily feel like setting your will on God, but still do it. And that's where duty, loyalty, and faithfulness matter. That's where they matter. And we're all setting our will on something. Placing our hope, placing our faith, placing our loyalty somewhere. We all do that. We just do. I don't think we can help it. God created us as religious beings, and we place that somewhere. And we might even say like Peter, Lord, you know I love you. But does our life show that to be true? Did Peter's life show that to be true? An interesting thing that's you know, kind of lost in translation here is that the first two times you asked Peter, do you love me? And Lord, you know I love you. Those are actually two different words translated as love. Jesus uses a different word than Peter does. Jesus uses the high, devoted, directing your will kind of love, like we talked about when Jesus gave the command to love God. And Peter uses a word for affection or love for a friend. And the last time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me in that passage, he actually uses the same word that Peter had been using. Do you even love me like that? And Peter said, Jesus, you know everything. He's getting, he's getting frustrated. And I don't believe that Jesus intended to beat Peter up. That's not what he does. And I don't think he was really trying to, you know, just drag him down and remind him that he denied him three times. I'm pretty sure that Peter had probably punished himself plenty for that, as we tend to do. And each time Peter answers, you know I love you, Jesus answers, Feed my my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus was saying, if you love me, Peter, you're going to be my disciple, and that will be evident in what you do. You're going to follow me, and you're going to do what I want you to do. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And there's another layer to that as well, and not something to be disregarded because it applies to everyone who says, I love Jesus. And Peter likely felt, there's, you know, sometimes commentators call this the restoration of Peter, this passage. Peter likely felt that he had wrecked things so bad with Jesus that he was probably no longer going to be part of his plan. He probably felt like, okay, well, I've, I've, I've messed this up enough that Jesus isn't going to want me anymore. He's not going to make me part of his plans. And I think that could be why when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, Peter gives him a more humble answer than the kind of love Jesus is talking about. So at least in part, I think that's part of what's happening here, is Jesus is picking Peter up and he's saying to Peter, I still want you to be my follower. I still want you to be my follower. He's showing Peter that even though Peter feels like he has betrayed his Lord and done the worst, Jesus is still his Lord. And Peter probably messed that up about as much as anyone could, really, He had built himself up by saying he would never deny Jesus. 
and he would follow him even if that meant death. And he would follow him beyond anyone else. Even if everybody else turned away, he would never do that. And then when things got difficult, Peter denied that he knew Jesus three separate times. And Peter had thrown his loyalty and his devotion and his faithfulness to Jesus out the window when things got difficult. And, you know, people do that just like Peter. We throw those things out the window sometimes. But Jesus still wants Peter back. He still wants him back. Jesus went to the cross for Peter too. And that's, that's everybody's story. That's the gospel message. Jesus still wants you back. Even though you feel like, okay, I've done the worst. I've done this. There's no way that I could be reconciled. It's, it's Jesus still wants you back. He still wants you back. And if you say, I love Jesus, you know, set your will on him following him. Be loyal. Be faithful. Make that part of who you are in your family, in your church, in, in your life in general. And if you don't know Jesus yet, okay, you're, you're, you're not beyond Jesus wanting you back. You're just not. Set your will on him. Turn away from sin and self and understand he bled and died for you. He bled and died for you, and he wants you to be his follower. He wants you to be his disciple. And it, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. I mean, when you really think about what Peter had done and how he followed Jesus, built himself up, and then he denies Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't reject him. He's certainly not going to reject anyone else. And that's a lesson that we can learn from that. So if you don't know Jesus, or maybe you've wandered away from him, and sometimes we do that. We do things, we say we love Jesus, but it's not evidenced in how we live. Turn back to him. That's really what repentance is, is, is taking my will from somewhere besides God and setting it back on him. Trust Jesus.